welcome to this discussion on the latest ANZ CoreLogic Housing Affordability Report. My name's Brett Foley and I'm an editorial producer at ANZ. I'm joined here today by ANZ's Senior Economist, Felicity Emmett, and by CoreLogic's Head of Residential Research for Australia, Eliza Rowan. There's some fascinating detail in the report on the runaway housing market in Australia and how that's creating more challenges for housing affordability for many in the community. We can look into state-by-state -state breakdowns, the split between metropolitan and regional areas, and what's happening with first-time buyers. So talking about the housing market is the favourite pastime of many Australians. So to kick us off, Felicity, maybe you can give us a, a quick highlight of the report's findings. I think the report really shows there has been a, a fairly broadly based decline in housing affordability across most metrics and regions. I mean, the strength of the ANZ CoreLogic report is the range of measures that we look at that together give us a more nuanced look at housing affordability across the spectrum of people who already own their own home, who are aspirational homeowners, and those who are renting. And what we've seen is really the most significant deterioration is in affordability measures for people trying to achieve home ownership, like the deposit hurdle, which shows that it now takes a record uh, 10.2 years for a person on a median income to save for a median priced home. Uh, now, if we go back to the start of the data in the early 2000s, that number was five and a half years. So over a long period, we've seen this decline, but the pandemic has really accentuated that. And, and the way that the economy has evolved through the pandemic has really created a situation where the gap between those who've already achieved home ownership and those who haven't has widened. And I think that's something that really comes out in the report. Eliza, what stands out for you in terms of the affordability of buying or renting in the different markets around Australia? Well, at a high level, the portion of income required to service rents in Australia has hit a, a record high through the June 2021 quarter at 29.4% of weekly household income. So this creates an additional challenge to what Felicity was talking about in terms of accessing a deposit and trying to save for a 20% deposit in particular, is that at the same time you're trying to accumulate those savings, those who are renting and trying to get into the market will have seen some of their costs increase as well. Um, overall, the portion of income required to service a mortgage is higher. That's long been the case when you compare it with renting, but it's not at record highs. Um, what we've seen over the past quarter is a growth in the portion of income required to service a mortgage. Um, so it's gone from 35.6% um, at the end of March 21 to 37.2%. Uh, looking around the traps, there's generally uh, much higher portions of income required to service a mortgage when compared to renting when it comes to our largest cities of Sydney and Melbourne. So in Melbourne, um, it takes about 41% of income to service a new mortgage compared to just 26% of income required to service rents. Um, and that's really been exacerbated by subdued performance of Melbourne's rental market since the onset of COVID. 
Across Sydney, we see this even bigger disparity though, where you've got around 49% of income required to service a new mortgage compared to just 31% uh, required to service rents. So um, that, that disparity is quite uh, significant across those really expensive cities. And then there are a couple of areas where it's actually cheaper to service a new mortgage than, than rents. So areas like um, Darwin, regional Western Australia, uh, these resource-based markets tend to see more demand for rental properties, particularly where your workforces tend to be transitory and, and around mining projects, for example. Um, whereas the longer term demand for um, property purchases has kept, I think, prices a, a little bit lower and therefore the, the mortgage serviceability a bit lower as well. Oh, Felicity, to your point earlier on how the pandemic has accentuated the housing divide, is, is that something that's been growing over time? And, and what do you think is the solution? Oh, look, you know, we've had... Um you know, numerous uh, inquiries about what solutions um, there are to the problem of housing affordability over the past couple of decades. But alongside those inquiries, we've had ongoing declines in rates of home ownership across um, all uh, age groups. So this is something that really is politically quite difficult um, and it probably requires a multi-pronged approach. I mean, through the, the pandemic, some of these issues have been exacerbated because we've had a period of very low interest rates. We've had unconventional monetary policy that has uh, lowered mortgage rates even further than what the cash rate would suggest. And that has resulted in, in very large rises in house prices. We have to remember that this is a deliberate um, part of the monetary policy mechanism and there would be many people who'd be out of a job were it not for those lower rates and that certainly doesn't help housing affordability. But it does mean though that these large rises in house prices make it much more difficult for those people who don't own currently own a home to get into the market and as Eliza pointed out they're also paying higher rent so it certainly is something that um, requires a, a multi-pronged approach that would look at things like uh, zoning regulations and supply, but also some of the demand issues. And at the moment, our, our tax and welfare systems probably um, don't act together in a way that is particularly helpful for housing affordability. So there are all different measures that, that could be addressed, but it is definitely quite politically challenging. We've heard a lot about people moving out of the major cities during the pandemic. Is that showing up in the data in, in any way in terms of what it costs to buy or rent? Um, for sure, there have been a lot of indications of regional markets outstripping um, the, the capital cities in terms of housing demand. Even just looking at the growth rates alone, between March 2020 and the June 2021 quarters, dwelling values across regional Australia have increased 18% compared to an uplift across the capital cities of just 11%. Um, that's 
for, for several reasons. Um, we've definitely seen a little bit of an uptick in the amount of people going from capital cities to regional Australia. And something that's also exacerbated that is that through the COVID period, not as many people left regional Australia. So that's also meant that you don't get the same kind of housing turnover and availability. Listings levels become very low across the regions and that sort of adds to the demand pressures as well. Um, with international border closures, we've also seen a surge in domestic tourism, which has meant that when it comes to some of those holiday hotspots, say along the coast of New South Wales, um, there have been really strong uplifts in rental values where there may be additional supply pressures if, you know, people opt for short-term holiday accommodation as the strategy for their investment properties, as opposed to putting them on the long-term rental market. Um, we've also seen that, you know, some wealthier households might have that flexibility of remote work. Uh, they might be picking up holiday homes in some of those areas as well which limits the amount of supply in regional Australia. Um, and also just the, I, I think, broader great resignation, the, the um, fact that COVID may have brought forward retirement decisions for some people as well. Um, we do see that proportionally, there was a pretty strong uplift in the people aged 65 and over who were making those moves to regional Australia. So that's all really showing up in the, um, the metrics of affordability, where over a relatively short period of time, um, the combined regions has seen, you know, time taken to save a 20% deposit went from uh, 7.8 for uh, 7.8 years for a house in the March 2020 quarter, up to 9.4 years as of June 2021. So it's really created uh, a, a very sudden, I would say, um, amount of affordability pressures in regional Australia and definitely exacerbated in some of the more coastal lifestyle markets. Yeah, I was just going to add, you know, this has um, been a really interesting development in the pandemic and what will be worth watching over the next 12 months or so is how those relativities change as we see international borders reopen, the opportunity to holiday overseas come back, um, new migrants, students coming into the country. And it's likely that we do see at least a part reversal of some of these trends. Um, but some of them will actually uh, remain permanent. Yeah, that's a really mm. good point. Because I think for a lot of big um, companies as well, big employers who would have committed to office leases before COVID say, they'd probably be trying to get people back into the office. So there are some definitely uh, mitigating forces of, of those um, migration trends that we've seen through COVID that it, it, I think it's so hard to say whether they're permanent changes or not. Uh, and the other thing I'd be interested to uh, keep an eye on is just how international visitation changes as well. One of the reasons that we've seen, for example, the portion of income required to service rent across Melbourne um, has, has stayed really low, particularly in the unit segment, because there hasn't been that international demand for rentals in a very global city. 
But when those international visitors do come back, are they going to want to return to our cities or will this change visitation patterns as well? The situation in Melbourne is interesting too with the underperformance of the CBD. What's your best guess? Do, do we see a recovery there when restrictions ease and borders open? Yeah, I think when it comes to the, the portion of income required to service rent for Melbourne units has, uh, has fallen. So it's gone from um, 27% thereabouts at the March 2020 quarter um, down to 24% by June 2021. So if you like, it's kind of been one of the, the bright spots for affordability. Um, in our data, we're already seeing the rental market has tightened up a little bit. So we're seeing um, potentially some of the excess investment stock being sold off, um, the, the return to CBDs as these rents have become more affordable. Um, I would say there's probably a lot of the infrastructure still there for uh, international students to, to be coming back to the city centres. So, uh, you know, I think we'd probably only continue to see a bit of a recovery, um, but it'll be interesting to know whether remote learning or remote work does um, mitigate any of that recovery as well. Sydney's affordability obviously isn't improving either. Do you see that as having a bearing on people's choices to live there you know, compared to other capitals like Brisbane? Absolutely. I mean, Sydney is the most expensive city to live in. Uh, and I think, you know, those affordability constraints have been playing out for a number of years. When you look at the migration data, you can see that, you know, Sydney loses people to uh, other capital cities and other regions all the time. Uh, the pandemic has exacerbated that a little bit. We're seeing more people leaving Sydney. And I, I think that trend will, will continue uh, and we'll see people um, move to those more affordable centres like Brisbane and like Melbourne, um, given the affordability constraints here. And, and that, that drop in, in rental serviceability uh, in Melbourne, which is um, even, uh, you know, it is even more affordable if it's you're talking about those inner suburbs where the weakness has really been concentrated, you know, for uh, up and coming professionals, you know, a move to Melbourne would be very appealing, um, given those, uh, those that better affordability situation. And then if you're paying less rent, as we talked about earlier on, um, you've got more capacity to save to buy a home. Mm, and, and Brisbane was mentioned there as well. I think that's been the real kind of hero <laughs> housing market mm -hmm. when, it, when it comes to affordability relative to Sydney and Melbourne. Um, when we saw social distancing restrictions ease toward the end of um, 2020, there was this surge in migration from Melbourne to Brisbane and regional Queensland specifically. Um, where, you know, if, if the difference of servicing a new mortgage through the June quarter, you're looking at over 40% for, for Melbourne, you're looking at 32% for Brisbane, and that's not taking into account the fact that people on Melbourne tend to be on higher incomes as well. So the migration trend has really reflected um, just how popular the Southeast Queensland market, I think, has been in particular. 
And it's definitely one where we haven't seen the same kind of strain on, a, on affordability, um, you know, due, due to its relatively um, low rates of capital growth when you compare it with Sydney and Melbourne. So uh, I think that's serving as a real tailwind for that market now and probably why it's expected to be one of the better performers through 2022. Yeah, that's right. And the other point I'd make, you know, when we're talking about Sydney, you know, at the moment, it's over 49% to service a new mortgage on the median income for the median price dwelling in Sydney. And I think that that really highlights that actually it's not people on median incomes that are buying median priced homes. That's clearly unaffordable to be paying nearly 50% out of your gross income to service that. So it just shows how unaffordable Sydney has become for people on the median income and so how much more appealing some of these other um, cities are likely to be and and that comes down to you know the stage of life that that a household is at and uh you you know what kind of compromises they're willing to make as well obviously the median household income uh earners at the moment across sydney would be having to look to much more dense or uh, relatively affordable housing stock to kind of get into the market. Whereas Sydney buyers who are at that stage of life where maybe they've just had a baby or, you know, they're, they're trying to um, find a, a larger family home. They've kind of got no choice, <laughs> I think, but, but to look into state as well. You mentioned Darwin earlier and, and parts of regional Western Australia uh, where it's cheaper to service a mortgage uh, than rent. Um, does that, make those destinations more attractive as well? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that the when it comes to regional, you know, Western Australia and, and areas of the territory outside of Darwin, that's a big kind of lifestyle shift to be making just for um, the affordability of, of ownership and the attainability of ownership. So I don't know how many households would be tempted to make those kinds of moves. Um, I think it's probably the, the next most large and affordable um, cities and, and major regional centres. And that's where we've seen a lot of strain across regional New South Wales and the affordability metrics that have, that have been rising there. And of course, across Hobart as well, which is very popular with interstate buyers. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, we have to keep in mind that these affordability metrics have a, a, a numerator and a denominator and the income measure is obviously really important. And so when people are deciding where to live, they are having to factor into their calculations both the cost of the home but the sort of job that they can get and that's why you know big dynamic cities like Brisbane and Melbourne are probably going to continue to be sort of the the second choice or or, or the next choice for people who feel priced out of the Sydney market. I'm going to ask you to look into the crystal ball now. Uh, prospective buyers they always want to know you know, should they be waiting into the market now or waiting for things to stabilise a little first? Well, at ANZ Research, our crystal ball uh, shows that um, house prices are probably going to continue to rise a little bit further from here. I mean, rates, interest rates are still 
very low, households are very cashed up, um, given that the saving rate's been so high because they've had limited spending opportunities, including um, an inability to spend on overseas travel. So I think there's probably a little bit more left in the house price tank and that we'll see further gains, not at the same rate that we've seen uh, over the past year. But I think, you know, we are starting to see uh, mortgage rates rise. Um, fixed mortgage rates in particular are heading higher. And eventually, that's probably likely to be enough of a headwind for the housing markets to see house prices um, start to come off a little bit. And we think that will probably happen in 2023 and where we will see some a modest declines in house prices then. The other thing to note when it comes to trying to time the market in terms of its affordability is that there may be a bit of a trade-off. You know, when, when Felicity, you're talking about the increase in mortgage rates that would put downward pressure on the uh, house price, that may ease the metrics around the number of years it takes to save a deposit. Um, but it could increase the portion of income required to service a mortgage. So there are those trade-offs of affordability and accessibility to think of around the housing market. And I've always thought rather than trying to time the market to the right year or even the right month, it's better to just go in with terms that you can afford for the kind of property that, that you wanna buy when it becomes available. Very good advice. Felicity and Eliza, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a great discussion. Thank you for listening to Blue Notes. This podcast was produced by the Blue Notes editorial team with music by Kevin McLeod. Blue Notes is a publication of ANZ Banking Group.